0: I used to be the associate pastor at another church. And I remember one day getting to the church and going to my office to do some work. And while I was working, quite suddenly the pastor came and stuck his head in my office door and he said, in a very low voice, go look out a window and see what kind of a car is in the parking lot. And then he went back into his office and closed the door. Well, I thought this request was pretty strange, but I went and did it. And after I looked out the window, I went back to my office, and on my way back, I passed a man who was very well-dressed, who was heading out of the pastor's office towards the front door of the church. So I went to the pastor's office, and I said, whoa, what, what what is going on? What was all of this about? And he said, that guy dropped by the church today, and he said that he's a pastor, and that his church has fallen on hard times, and he really needs our church to give him some financial assistance. Then he again asked me what kind of a car this guy was driving. And I told him what I saw, and basically it was like a brand-new Mercedes. Who should the church give its financial assistance to? You know, there are lots of people out there who would like some free money. Should we just give free money to anybody who asks? If so, we're going to get fleeced by scammers like the guy I just talked about. No, as good stewards... We can't just give to anybody, so who should we financially assist? That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return to our study in the book of 1 Timothy. Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, if you've got a Bible turned there, and as you turn there, let me remind you of what's going on in this book. Paul is writing to his longtime friend Timothy, who's serving as a church leader in the church at Ephesus. And the Ephesian church is having serious problems with heresy. There are false teachers trying to put Christians back under the Jewish dietary law. And these false teachers are also denouncing the practice of marriage. And this heresy was really hurting the church. And so Paul wants to go deal with the heretics in Ephesus, but it's going to take Paul a while to get there. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy, hoping Timothy can start to fix things before Paul even arrives. And so far in this book, Paul has told Timothy that he needs to sort out the church's corporate prayer life and he needs to sort out its leadership. He says Timothy needs to fix the church's attention on the true gospel. He needs to expose this heresy as a dangerous error. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul told Timothy, Don't just tend to your teaching, tend also to your own life. Strive to set a personal example in the church of living in line with the gospel. Setting an example of speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. But now as we come to chapter 5, Paul is going to introduce two new ideas which are going to appear again and again over the next few weeks. First, Paul says that a healthy church is characterized by having a family-like community And second, Paul's going to talk a lot about how a church thinks about and spends its money. And we're going to see these two ideas, the church's community and the church's money, and how they work together over the next few weeks. And this morning, we're going to see how these ideas work together as we talk about the church's benevolence ministry that is our charitable giving. And today we're going to examine this subject in two points. First, we're going to see who should receive the church's charitable giving. And then second, we're going to look at two groups that should not receive the church's charitable giving. So let's jump right into our first point, who should receive the church's charitable giving. Start reading in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now, we're going to take a closer look at these verses in a few weeks. But right now, I want you to see two things. First, the church is like a family. Now, the church is not literally our family. Some cults will say stuff like, well, we're your family now, and then they want you to actually ditch your real family. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, the church does not replace or supersede our actual families. But the church community is family-like. There's a reason that for generations, Christians have called each other brothers and sisters. Because in the way that we operate, the way that we treat each other, there is to be this family-like character to our community. Second, Paul tells Timothy that as a leader in the church, he must treat people in the church in this familial way. Timothy's to encourage younger church members as though they were his own siblings. He's to talk to older church members as though They were like his own parents. And it's this idea of treating older people with respect that largely stands behind the next instruction that Paul gives, which is what we're going to focus on this morning in verse 3. Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. Paul is concerned about widows in the church, women whose husbands have died. Why does Paul have this concern? Well, in the ancient world, things were a lot different than they are today. Overwhelmingly in the ancient world, men earned a wage while women did not. Very few women in antiquity had any kind of formal education or employable skills. So the loss of a husband usually meant that a woman would no longer have access to a respectable way to earn a living. (coughs) Beyond that... Women were usually afforded very few legal protections in the ancient world. So a widow was particularly vulnerable to exploitation because she didn't have a husband around anymore to protect her physically or legally. Now in the Greco-Roman world, widows who were young enough might try to remarry. But often widows found themselves having to choose between slavery, prostitution, or starvation. That's a pretty bad choice, right? And that's another big difference between the ancient world and our modern American society today. A lot of people starved to death in antiquity. That was not an uncommon way to die. In fact, in some places in the world today, a lot of people still starve to death. But in the ancient world, there was no social security. There was no welfare. I've got mine, and you've got yours, and if you run out of what's yours, well, that's just bad news for you. That was the attitude. So widowhood put women in an awful position, especially older women who were past the years of childbearing, which in the ancient world pretty much meant that you were past being marriageable. Widows, and especially older widows, were in really bad trouble, and God knew that. But God, in his kindness, made provisions in the Old Testament law to protect and provide for Israelite widows and other vulnerable people. Number one, God provided a way for them to eat. Other people in other societies didn't have this benefit, but God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 24, Farmers, you've got to leave some of your crops in the field so that orphans and widows and sojourners, that would be like wanderers or refugees, so that they could get some food. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 26, God imposed a tithe, a tax upon Israel, and this tithe was also used to ensure that widows and orphans and sojourners could eat. Second, God guaranteed that He would protect the vulnerable. Psalm 68, we read that, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in His holy habitation. And God warned that he would severely avenge the vulnerable if they suffered wrong. In Exodus 22, God says, "...you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry." And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. This is how seriously God took the the vulnerable being exploited. He threatened severe judgment upon those who would exploit widows and orphans and sojourners. And friends, God's concern for these vulnerable people was not restricted to the Old Testament. You know, the Lord Jesus often performed many of his miracles for the most vulnerable people in society. And Jesus was disgusted by the Jewish religious leaders of his day and denounced them in Mark 12 because they devour widows' houses. They were financially exploiting widows. Moreover, Jesus' followers understood that God wanted them to provide for vulnerable people like widows and orphans. In James 1.27, we read that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is why in Acts 6, the early church was very committed to providing food for its widows. Friends, we need to know that taking care of vulnerable people is something that God deeply cares about. And it's something that God wants his people to deeply care about. And for this reason, Paul, who is Jesus' apostle, he's concerned about how the Ephesian church is taking care of its vulnerable members. And so Paul wants Timothy to be concerned about the widows in his church. Now we might ask, well, why doesn't Paul say anything here about orphans or sojourners or any other vulnerable folks? And I don't think the answer is that God has stopped caring about these other groups of people. No, instead what we have to remember is Paul is not here trying to write an exhaustive essay about exactly all types of people we should care for and exactly how we should care for them. No, Paul is writing a letter to a real church at a real place at a real point in time that had real problems. And evidently one real problem the Ephesian church had was its widows weren't being taken care of. This may have had something to do with the false teaching in the church. Remember, there's the false teaching in the church that said marriage is sin. The false teachers may have been saying widows shouldn't be supported because they sinned by being married. Well, that would explain why Paul really wants to make sure Timothy fixes this situation and takes care of the widows. But I don't think the point of this passage for us today is that we here think, well, we only need to take care of our widows. Instead, as we think about today's passage, what I think we need to do is learn from what Paul says about the widows in Ephesus and extract principles from his instruction here and apply those same principles in our context for how we take care of all kinds of vulnerable people. And this may look a bit different in our day than it looked in Paul's, but Paul wants Timothy to honor widows, and I think we're going to learn some important lessons as he develops his argument. Now, what does Paul mean when he says honor widows? This word honor we're going to see next week isn't simply talking about showing somebody respect. Instead, Paul uses the word honor in this chapter to talk about the church paying somebody money. So what Paul is saying to Timothy here is not simply uh, treat widowed ladies in the church with respect like they were your mothers or your sisters. No, this goes beyond that. Paul says to Timothy, see to it that some of the widows in your church receive money from the church. And understand, he's not talking about just giving widows money one time. He's talking here about the church undertaking to finance the livelihoods of these widows for their remaining years. That's the idea. Timothy is to lead the congregation in honoring some of the widows with this kind of massive financial commitment. But which widows are to receive this commitment? But Paul says here, only those who are truly widows. It's an odd phrase. When we read it, we might think at first that Paul's concern is that the church might get scammed, that there are real widows and imposters, who are posing as widows to get money. But as we read on in the chapter, we discover that isn't really what Paul's saying here. The issue is not genuine widows versus imposters. Rather, the issue is there are widows who have shown themselves to be worthy of deserving assistance and widows who are not deserving of assistance. That's the contrast Paul makes here as we look down at verse 5. Paul says, She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So the woman that Paul calls truly a widow, the widow who is deserving of financial support, she is characterized by three things. First, she has been truly left all alone. That is, her husband has, in fact, died. Second, she has set her hope on God. She has repentantly entrusted herself to Jesus on the basis of his deity, death, and resurrection. And third, she evidences her sincere faith with a devoted prayer life. Back in chapter 2 of this book, Paul said that the church should pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. The widow who is worthy of support has that kind of a prayer life. She puts into practice what Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, which is what Paul himself did in 1 Thessalonians 3 when he said that he prayed night and day for the Thessalonians. The widow that Paul says is worthy of support here has that kind of frequent, consistent prayer life she has suffered bereavement, and yet she responds to her tragic difficulties with a life of faith and prayer. Now, Paul here isn't saying that everyone who meets these criteria is going to get a distribution from the church. We're going to see later on there are other roles he puts down, okay? So there may be spiritually qualified widows who don't receive money from the church because of some of the other things Paul is going to say. But Any widow who does receive money has to at least meet these criteria. Okay. Now, in contrast to the spiritually qualified widow, in verse 6, is she who is self-indulgent. Now, here we've got another widow. But this widow is not characterized by faith and prayer. Her life looks very different. It's marked by self-indulgence. The verb suggests either sexual sin or just reveling in excessive luxury. This is somebody who responds to her tragedy by figuring out how to acquire and enjoy the pleasures of the world. Her conduct does not reflect the transformed life that is found in Christ. It reflects spiritual death, Paul says. Either she's an unbeliever or she's acting like an unbeliever. And although the self-indulgent widow is still a widow, although she has lost her husband, her lifestyle of wickedness has shown that she is not worthy of the church's support. Only those widows whose lives reflect the truth of the gospel are worthy of support. And again, only some of them are actually going to meet all of the qualifications Paul lays down. But those who are spiritually qualified are those that Paul calls truly widows in this passage. And what is the church's stance to be towards those who are truly widows? Drop down to verse 9. Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Here are a bunch of other criteria Paul lays down upon the spiritually qualified widow. We'll talk about the age requirement more in a few minutes. But look at what else Paul says. She has been the wife of one husband. While her husband was still alive, she was sexually and emotionally faithful to him. She has a reputation for being devoted to good works. She lives a life characterized by obedience to God's will and word. And Paul gives a few examples of what her good works might look like. She raised her children, if she had any, in a God-honoring way. She has shown hospitality. She's been kind towards strangers and other vulnerable people, especially towards those who were hurting or afflicted, perhaps those who suffered persecution. She has washed the feet of the saints. That is, she is known for serving her fellow believers and performing even the most menial and unpleasant tasks. This is the kind of a woman, Paul says, that is entitled to assistance. But again, he's going to have some more to say about that in a few minutes. But at a minimum, her life must thoroughly reflect the gospel. And Paul says that a woman like this is to be enrolled. That is, she is to be placed on the list of people who will receive their living from the church. Now again, in just a minute, we're going to see Paul is going to say that not every godly widow should receive a living from the church. But what we can say at this point is that the widows who will receive money from the church will be those who are characterized by faith, prayer, marital fidelity, good works, and service. Now, how should we apply this here? I think there's four truths we need to learn so far. Number one, benevolence ministry has to be an important part of our financial priorities as a church. You know, a lot of churches today have budgets that primarily consist of salaries, building expenses, and missionaries. And our budget's like that here, too. And there are good, biblically-supportable reasons for that. But at the end of the day, we must not forget that God wants His church not only to meet our overhead, but also to provide for the vulnerable. Just as Christ lovingly gave Himself for us in our vulnerable and precarious position as condemned sinners... We, too, must lovingly give for those who need our help. We must care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, I think Christians often recognize that we should do this, and so we engage in charitable giving privately, and that's a great thing that we should do. But charitable giving isn't only a private matter. It's something that the church as an institution is to do, too. And at this church, we do have a fund reserved for benevolence, Because this is and has been a biblical financial priority for us. But how should we use this money? Well, the second thing that we see here is that when the church engages in benevolence giving, we are to prioritize believers. This is clear from Paul's distinction between the woman who is truly a widow and the woman who is spiritually dead. The former is deserving of the church's support. The latter isn't. Now, there is a time and a place... For the church to engage in charitable giving that impacts non-believers as a testimony for Christ or as an act of responsible involvement in our society, like contributing to disaster relief or helping the local food bank or homeless shelter. Those are legitimate uses of church money. But ordinarily, when we use our benevolence money, we need to prioritize helping believers. Paul sets an example of this in his letters. As he's often going around raising funds to help poor believers in Jerusalem. Likewise, in Galatians 6, we read that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, we're not just a nonprofit that gives away money, we're a church. Our chief priority in benevolence must be to look after vulnerable believers and their families. Third, When the church engages in benevolence giving, we are to prioritize people that have a legitimate connection to the church. I remember back when I worked at a church that had a phone, about half of the calls that we got were from people that had no connection to the church, just cold calling us, hoping for a handout. Now, perhaps those people had legitimate needs, but it was impossible to determine that because we didn't actually know who these people were. But when Paul describes benevolence giving in this passage, he isn't recommending that the church fund people that it doesn't know. On the contrary, he commands the church to take care of people that it knows very well, people that have a reputation, he says, for good works in the church. This is who we need to prioritize in our charitable giving. In this church, we have a benevolence policy, and this policy says that basically we're only going to financially assist church members people who have formally committed themselves and submitted themselves to this church, who have gone through the membership process and been voted into membership by the congregation. We've made limited exceptions to this in the past, but I think going forward we really need to cohere to these principles. We've got to prioritize church members and church members' families. And we are only going to assist people with legitimate needs. Friends, as stewards, we've got to check and make sure any need that we finance is real and that we don't want you to be offended when we do that. That's our job before Christ. But it isn't going to be our practice here that we write checks to people we don't know or that we, we write checks to people who only come around the church when they need something and we don't see them the rest of the time. Okay, we're not gullible. Right? We notice when these kind of things happen. If there are people who want help, and who are not otherwise connected to this church, we're willing to buy them lunch, we're willing to pay them a fair wage to help us out with some tasks around the building, but we aren't just going to write a check to somebody that we don't know and can't vet. Number four, when the church engages in benevolence giving, we are to prioritize church members who are known for serving the church. You know, in every church, unfortunately, you wind up with people who are really committed and people who are on the periphery. It would be great if everybody was really committed. But in this passage, as Paul describes the widows who receive the church's help, he says they are the ones who are deeply involved in serving, who are profoundly connected to the life of the church by showing hospitality and helping the needy and ministering to the saints. These are the people who are most entitled to the church's support, Paul says. And that logic has to shape how we practice benevolence too. So so far we've seen that we should financially assist godly believers who are legitimately connected to this church and especially those who serve here with regularity. We come now to our second point, and here we see who should not receive charitable giving from the church. So far Paul has said that only widows who are characterized by faith, prayer, marital fidelity, good works, and service can receive financial assistance from the church and not those who are self-indulgent in sin. But now Paul sets out some additional instructions. And these instructions tell us that there are in fact two cases in which an otherwise spiritually qualified widow should still not receive the church's charitable giving. First, Paul says that a godly widow should not receive the church's charity if she can get what she needs from another source. Look back at verse 4. Paul says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, Timothy's not just to ensure that spiritually qualified widows receive church benevolence. He's also to issue commands to church members about how they provide for their own families. And that's the first thing I want you to see here. Let's look at verse 8. And in this verse, what Paul is saying is this. Believers, if we have families, we are obligated by God to provide for them if we can do so. This is really important in our day and age. Over the last few years there has been a growing sense in this country that it's okay to drop out of the workforce and just live indefinitely on governmental assistance. There are influential social media groups devoted to the concept of being anti-work, of having a work-free, leisure-filled life supported by the government. But friends, this is not acceptable for the believer. God made humanity to work. God created Adam and immediately put him in the garden and gave him an assignment to to keep it. God made us to work. We are still to work today. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, We urge you, brothers, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Believers are to work either by bringing in a wage from outside the home or doing housework. But believers are to avoid being totally dependent upon other people. No, we are to provide for ourselves. This is what Paul did. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, With toil and labor, we worked night and day. Paul worked hard to earn a living. He expected believers to do the same. And in fact, he told the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, If anyone is not willing to work... Let him not eat. Paul said that the church should refuse to support someone who was refusing to work. Now, to be clear, this command is only talking about those who are not willing to work. It's not saying anything about those who want to work but can't find a job or those who are physically or mentally infirm or incapable of work because of age. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul is saying, though, is if you can work and you have opportunity to work and you say, i got something better to do, that's sin. Especially if you have a household. Especially if there are mouths in your home who are dependent on you to feed them. But, you know, sometimes there are people who have dependents who still refuse to work. Who refuse to provide for those in their care. I knew a man who once refused to work. And when he was asked why, he said that God had given him a prophetic word, that he was going to become a world championship tennis player. He was going to win Wimbledon, so he wasn't going to work because he had faith in this vision. And that was all what he was claiming, despite the fact he was in his mid-30s and had never played tennis. It was totally absurd, but that was his story, and he was sticking to it. And his church leaders took no action against him. In fact, some of them helped him out, contrary to what Paul said. And over time, this man exhausted his bank account. He went through his wife's inheritance and all of their property. He destroyed their marriage, and they wound up divorced. It's a terrible story. Sin leads to destruction, and lazily refusing to work is sin. And Paul has something to say about this kind of conduct. He says anybody given to that kind of laziness who refuses to provide for his own family, has denied the faith. Listen to this. It's important. We tend to think of apostasy only as the act of explicitly denying Jesus, of verbally renouncing his deity or resurrection. But that is not the only way the Bible talks about apostasy. Yes, we commit apostasy if we repudiate the faith. But we also commit apostasy if we adopt a lifestyle totally contrary to the gospel. Paul says the false teachers in the book of Titus did this when he says, They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. In the same way, Paul says here that any person who claims to be a Christian, but who refuses to provide for his own family, has committed apostasy, he has renounced Christ by his actions. And shown that he never belonged to Jesus to begin with. Moreover, Paul says anyone who refuses to provide for his family isn't just apostate, he has become worse than an unbeliever. Even the worst pagans know they ought to take care of their families. But here are so called believers refusing to fulfill even the most basic obligations. And Paul says this is obscene, it's satanic, it's apostate. Believers, we must provide for our families but this leads to the second truth Paul establishes here, which is that the family members were obligated to support include our own aging parents and grandparents, those who took care of us when we were small, who invested their time and money loving and raising and educating us. We owe them a great debt, and Paul says more than that. We owe them a return on the investment that they made in us. They provided for us and took care of us And so when the time comes that they can no longer look after themselves, it is incumbent upon us to take care of them. This is a vital part of what God commanded in the Old Testament law when he said, honor your father and your mother, which is repeated in the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Friends we must honor our parents. We are to care for them when they cannot care for themselves. We are to provide for them when they cannot provide for themselves. And Paul says when we do that, that's an act of godliness. It's the fulfillment of a sacred duty. It's something that pleases God. And so Paul wants Timothy to tell the Ephesians, provide for your aging relatives, especially for your mothers and grandmothers when they become widowed. Fulfilling these duties is a big part of what it means for us to provide for our families and the members of our household. But I want you to see a third thing here, which is that it is in the middle of this context of describing a family's obligation to provide for its relatives, that Paul defines his two categories of widows. In the middle of this discussion, we find verse 5, where Paul says, here's how we know who's truly a widow, and verse 6, where he says, here's how we know who is the person that is self-indulgent and does not deserve support. At first, we might imagine that these two categories are only relevant for how a church engages in charitable giving, that the church shouldn't support somebody who is living contrary to the gospel. But we might think, well, but outside the church, individually, I'm still free to do this. And yet, it's in the middle of this discussion about the family and who the family should support that Paul establishes these two categories. Friends, there are times when it's wrong to support a relative because to do so would confirm and enable them in a lifestyle of sin that is leading them to hell. God commands us to be good stewards of our resources and to be loving. And it is not good stewardship to use our money to enable evil. And it is not loving to enable evil. And so the way that Paul builds this argument and the placement of verses 5 and 6 tell us that there are limits on our obligation to support family members. And there are times when it's right to conclude that supporting someone who is living in self-indulgent sin and reveling in that, that is not acceptable to God. But we do have an obligation to provide for those dependents who are a part of our household, who live under the same roof with us, and for our aging relatives who are not living in flagrant sin. But to round this out, let's look at Paul's last instruction about how we provide for our families in verse 16. He says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows... Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. It's not clear why Paul addresses this only to believing women. Maybe it's because if you moved your widowed mom or grandma into the house, the person most likely to tend to her would be the lady of the house. But the big idea that Paul says here is this If a widow can be provided for by members of her family, then it is her family who is to take care of her, not the church. That way, the family can fulfill its duty before God of providing for the widow, and the church is freed up from the obligation of having to pay for that widow's livelihood so that it can use that money to support other widows who have no family and no alternative means of support. Now, what should we take from all of this? Today, friends, the church has to be most willing to help those who have no other means of support. Again, our society is different than Paul's day. In Paul's time it was a safe bet that if a widow had no family she was in a real danger of starving to death because most people back then had no savings to pass on to their spouses when they died. There was no retirement account or stock portfolio. Back then women generally didn't and couldn't earn a living in the marketplace but all of that is different now. A widow without family today might not be in the dire situation she would have been in back in Paul's day. So I think a church's analysis in deciding whether a widow or any church member needs financial assistance is more complicated than what we find in this passage. Where someone has legitimate needs, the church should ask that person, Can your family help to meet these needs? And we should urge the family to do so. But if the person does not have family, that's not the end of the analysis. That doesn't mean that we have to cut them a check. Instead, we need to ask more questions Do you have access to savings? Do you have the ability to work a job and make ends meet? Friends, the church's charitable distribution is to be a last resort, not the first place that people turn. This is especially true when the need is something like the need of the widows described in this passage. This is not merely a one-time payout. This is a recurring gift to provide for someone's livelihood. That can only become the church's burden when there are no other ways to help that member. But if there really are no other ways to help that member, it is our duty to assist that member as the ancient church did by even being willing to sell our own possessions if necessary to make sure that a fellow believer has what they need to live. Because friends, we are one body. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, we are members of one another. But we are to undertake this extreme obligation as a church only if there's no other way to meet that need. Now we come to the last situation Paul describes, which is another situation in which a spiritually qualified widow should not receive charitable giving from the church. And the situation here is where putting someone on the church's charitable distribution list is likely to cause them to stumble into sin. Look at verse 11. Paul says, "...but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry." and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." At first, these verses sound very confusing, but I think we can work this out if we just read this very carefully. In verse 15, Paul says that he knows about some younger widows who had been a part of the Ephesian church, who received payouts from the church, and who fell into lives of evil. They have strayed after Satan. These are the widows Paul described in verse 6, who are self-indulgent, who are dead even as they live. These widows are not to receive any more support from the church, and maybe they shouldn't even be supported by their families. But the tragic moral collapse of this first group of widows now causes Paul to give new instructions to the church about how it should care for younger widows going forward. These instructions are designed to make sure that what happened in the past doesn't happen again, that younger widows are not stumbled into falling away from the faith, but that they're able to maintain their testimony. So here is Paul's instruction. He says, don't enroll younger women on the church's distribution list. Back in verse 9, Paul said, enroll them only if they're over 60 years old. Now we learn that if a widow was less than 60, she was not to be enrolled. That is, the church was not to commit, financing, not to commit itself to financing the rest of her life. Why? Because experience taught Paul that enrolling a younger widow on the church's list proved to be a huge temptation to the woman. It wasn't helping these women live the kinds of godly lives that Paul described in verse 10. It was stumbling them into ruin. And this is true in two ways, he says. First, he says that younger widows will experience strong sexual desires. Desires that were fulfilled when they had been married, but which could now not be legitimately fulfilled in their widowhood without them remarrying. And Paul says these desires were drawing them away from Christ and into marriages that incurred God's condemnation. Now, if you're like me here, you're really confused because it's Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than burn with passion. If you're in a state of singleness and consumed with sexual desire, it's time to get married. And these widows are having strong sexual desires. Shouldn't they then get married? Why does Paul say when they get remarried, they're abandoning the faith and incurring condemnation? Maybe we might think Paul's against widowed people remarrying, but that's not the case at all. In verse 14 of this chapter, Paul's going to say he hopes that younger widows will get remarried. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if a woman's husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That is, she must only marry a believer. So Paul's got no problem with widows remarrying generally. So what's his problem here? Two alternative explanations have been proposed. First, it's suggested by some that maybe these widows sinned by remarrying because the men they married were not believers. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Maybe the issue here is that these widows' sexual desires led them into evil relationships with evil men that they solidified through marriage. But if that's the situation here, why does Paul never mention any of these specifics in the passage? Why does he not harp on the dangers of of marrying an unbeliever? Why does he not simply urge the widows to marry only a believer? This explanation does not seem to adequately explain what Paul says here. I don't think it's right. Rather, I think the likely explanation is the second solution that has been proposed, which is that when a widow was enrolled, when it was decided that her livelihood should be provided by the church for the rest of her life, that she made a commitment to live her remaining years in singleness and in service to the church with the sorts of deeds described in verse 10, good works, hospitality, and service. But to enroll a younger widow on the church's list, to ask a younger widow to pledge her remaining years to singleness and service to the church was asking for more of a commitment than most younger widows could live up to. And when these women began to feel desire again, they were put into a very difficult choice. To burn with passion, a passion that could not be acted upon, or to breach the vow that they had made to Christ and his church by renouncing their promise to remain perpetually single. Now, I know that this whole scenario may sound strange to us here sitting in a Protestant church today, but I have to tell you this does seem to be the best explanation for the data because Paul clearly has no problem with young widows remarrying in verse 14, young widows who were not on the church's distribution list. But Paul has a big problem with young widows who were on the distribution list remarrying in verse 11. So the issue really seems to be that if you're on the distribution list, you should not remarry. And this explains why Paul says that these younger widows' act of remarrying constituted an abandonment of their former faith. This translation may may be a bit off. The word translated faith here can also mean a pledge or a commitment. So Paul may be saying they abandoned their pledge, that is to Christ, to remain single while living on the church's generosity. And by breaking this promise before God... Paul says they incurred condemnation, or the word can mean guilt, because they broke their vow before God, which is a serious sin. But Paul had seen young widows put on the distribution list, and their sexual urges led them to break their commitment to the Lord and remarry, incurring guilt. And Paul doesn't want to see any more younger women tempted by this situation. So he says, don't enroll any women who would be considered Of a marriageable age and he thinks that 60 is the cutoff. Now those of us who are close to 60 might be offended by this. Today we like to say that 60 is the new 50 or 40 or whatnot but in the Greco-Roman world life expectancy was about 25. So being 60 back then was seen as being quite old and Paul figures if you're 60 you're probably not getting remarried at least in his culture. And that means that widows at 60 are safe to be put into this position of living on the church's expense and being asked to devote themselves to singleness and service going forward. But Paul also tells Timothy not to enroll younger women for a second reason here, which is that when the church commits to pay for someone's livelihood going forward, that person might find that they have a lot more free time on their hands than is good for them, and they might use that free time in sinful ways. Paul saw this happen in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, there were mooches who refused to work, and the church supported them. And what happened? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. They used all their free time to go insert themselves into other people's business and stirred up needless trouble and gossip and slander. And Paul's got that same concern here. He says if younger widows find all their needs are being provided by the church, they're going to have a lot of extra time on their hands. And this might lead them to drift, not just into laziness, but into sin and gossip, stirring up contention inside and outside the church. And not only would this be bad for the community life of the church, it would hurt the church's public witness. Imagine you've got one of these busybodies in your neighborhood. You think, oh, I know her. She causes trouble for all of us. And, you know, she doesn't even have to work. She's one of those Christians. And they're so okay with her bad behavior, they financially support her. That kind of thing is going to be terrible for the gospel and and the testimony about Jesus. Paul doesn't want to see that happen. So instead of seeing young widows put into this position of temptation, Paul says in his judgment, it's best not to let the church finance them, but instead that they be urged to remarry, have more kids, tend to their own business, and control their behavior. Now we might be surprised Paul wants young widows to remarry here, especially because in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that he thinks it's best for people to remain single. But Paul's experience with young widows in the church has shown him that usually people who have been previously married do not acquire the gift of singleness after being widowed. Their passions make it necessary for them to remarry, and that is his guidance. Younger widows should remarry. They should not be enrolled on the church's distribution list. What should we take from this? Let me say first that while I think the best interpretation of this passage suggests that those who received their livelihoods from the church's charity likely committed themselves to singleness for the rest of their lives, I would be hesitant to impose that requirement today because we never find this requirement explicitly spelled out anywhere in the Scripture. Instead, I would apply these verses like this. We never want our charitable giving to become a snare of temptation to anyone. We always have to consider the totality of the circumstances when someone asks us for help. And if the leadership of the church perceives that the church's help might enable some sin or become a temptation to someone, we should not give them the money they request. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I knew a church that gave benevolence money To a man who refused to work, that was unwise. But beyond that, this man was known to smoke marijuana. Well, the church cut him a check, and where do you think the money went? Up in smoke, it turned out, after he was arrested by the police. A person in that situation with that susceptibility probably doesn't need to be getting benevolence money from the church. The money in that case is more a temptation to him than a help. And not only does it harm that person, but it can harm the reputation of Christ and his church in the community. And that's Paul's concern in these verses, right? The young widow may be stumbled into living as a busybody, causing trouble, destroying her witness, exposing the church to disrepute. Friends, if we think there's any request of that in a benevolence request, we must deny the request for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the person making the request. So let's conclude. Let me say first, today, if you're aware of somebody in the church that you think requires benevolence, or if you require our help, please don't be embarrassed to tell us that we have money earmarked for that purpose. If you're a member here, we want to help you. Second, we've seen that when we use benevolence money, we're to prioritize believers, church members, and especially those members who are devoted to serving here. We've seen that we should not give when a need can be financed outside the church, or when our giving would be a temptation to sin. We've also been reminded of our obligation to support our families, to honor our parents and grandparents and provide what they need, and to recognize that there are times when someone's lifestyle shows that it would be wrong for us to enable them and support them. Finally, friends, I want to just say, as Christ's church, how we use our money has to reflect the truth of the gospel. Jesus lovingly gave himself to save us. He died in our place for our sin to bring us to God. And so we likewise should lovingly give of ourselves to help those in need. May we each seek to be generous givers, looking for opportunities to help everyone, especially those of the household of faith. May we each live to be the kinds of involved and serving people that Paul says in this passage are worthy of the church's support. And may we remember to live in such a way that thanks God for his great kindness to us.